Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. Every time I read through this crucifixion story, I always have to battle between getting upset and angry at the ones who did it to my Savior. Then I realize, like, well, it was my sins that put him there. It was my sins that put him there. And then I tried to, like, balance that out with, like, but man, look at all that he went through for me. And it's amazing. The pain that he endured. And the world was going to give him all that they had concerning pain and suffering. They were going to give him their best. It's always easy to blame someone else when something wrong happens. And when that horrible thing happened 2,000 years ago, well, it's really easy to pin it on someone else. As much as you might want to blame the Roman soldiers or the religious leaders of the day of Jesus' death, you have to come to terms with the fact that it was your sin that put him on the cross. Pastor James reminds you today that all the suffering, agony, and separation that Jesus endured at Calvary was for you, in order to bring you salvation. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Mark, chapter 15, with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. Mark chapter 15, this is a heavy, heavy chapter in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus went through this this trial before Pilate, where Pilate was interrogating him, so to speak. You have all the Jewish religious leaders that are throwing all these accusations about Jesus to Pilate. Now, they they had to shift their accusations because just hours before, in their own trial, they were trying to drum up all these false accusations to bring to the Sanhedrin, which is the religious council, okay? But those are all like... He did these things against God, okay? Because they can't bring those accusations in front of Pilate because Pilate doesn't care about God. Pilate believes in lots of gods, okay? So now they have to come up with new accusations, and that's what they were doing. They were coming up with new accusations about Jesus to Pilate, and every single one that they threw out there, Pilate's like, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. This guy standing in front of me is an innocent man. But see, they had him in a corner, The Jewish leaders had Pilate in a corner because he already had two strikes against him, so to speak, and one more outbreak, one more riot, and he's out, right? From Rome, they would issue a decree that would remove Pilate from his position because if you can't handle these guys, if you can't manage these guys, which, come on, that is a difficult place to try to manage, right? Israel, Jerusalem specifically, and this is Passover week, but he already has some strikes against him. So the pressure's on, and the religious leaders know that. So they're drumming up all these accusations about Jesus of like, he's a traitor, he's leading a rebellion, and all this good stuff. So Pilate tries many ways to change their mind. He presents them Barabbas. Here's Barabbas, right? A known rebellious guy, right? He led an insurrection, okay? He's also guilty of murder. Do you want him, or do you want this innocent man? They're like, give us Barabbas. Give us the guilty guy, the one guilty of murder. Barabbas, it literally could say in that moment, he was the one guy that Jesus literally died for because he exchanged his life, Jesus's life for his own. Barabbas went free, which I find very, very fascinating. Even in today's study, Barabbas is still on my mind, okay? And I'll show you how and why and all that good stuff. But 
So from there, Pilate has Jesus scourged with the cat of nine tails, and it just, it just slaughters him. I mean, it just rips all the flesh off of his back. And then he sends him to die, and he, now he must take that 100-pound crossbeam, carry it through the city, out of the gates, up to Golgotha, which is Calvary, where he would be crucified. And that's where our story picks up. So in verse 21, as Jesus is carrying this, trying to carry this crossbeam, okay? Remember, no sleep, no water, no food. And he just, I mean, he, he's already suffered physical violence at the hands of the Jews and at the hands of the Roman soldiers, okay? Plus he has no more skin left on his back, on his thighs, you name it. His whole backside is gone. That's what the cat of nine tails would do to you, with a, especially with a group of Roman soldiers who have no rules, okay? So now he's got to carry this thing through the city, and he can't do it. Verse 21, it says, a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then. The soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. What an amazing moment. For here's Simon, the Cyrene, right? He just happens to be there on this day, and he just happens to be on that road at this moment and this time, and the Roman soldiers are like, hey, you, carry this guy's cross. We have no indication of like really who Simon is up until this point. We don't know, we don't know if, he, if he knew about Jesus or anything like that, but he got this tremendous opportunity to carry the cross for Jesus. Like he literally lives out, take up your cross and follow me kind of a thing. I have a feeling that this moment would forever, actually we know that this moment forever changed Simon's life. Not just his life, but his kids' lives. Because one of his boys ends up at the end of, book, of the book of Romans with a shout out from Paul. So here's Simon the Cyrene just showing up for Passover, just strolling into Jerusalem. And then here's this man who is a bloody mess and he has collapsed and this beam has collapsed on top of him. Like he can't physically do this anymore. So he picks it up, he carries it. It says in parentheses there, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. What a name. That's like a Texas name if I've ever heard one, right? Rufus, all right? What, why have we stopped calling our kids that? Why have we stopped naming our kids that? Probably because it sounds like what I named my dog, right? So Rufus, okay, but whatever. We don't know much about Rufus, but I'm sure it means something beautiful in the Greek, but I didn't look it up. So anyways, forever known as Rufus. I hope he's in heaven and we get to chat with him. 22, it says, and they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Now, this place in Jerusalem, you can visit there now. It's not as noticeable now, but on the, the side of this hill where Golgotha was, there was like a skull. It looks like a skull, like the eye sockets and the, the, the cavity for like the mouth and the nose. Like when you would show up there, you look at it and you're like, I can totally see a skull there. Now, some of it has decayed over time and it's crumbled away, but it's still there. The unfortunate thing is like just on the backside of that is a bus station and it's so loud and noisy and all that stuff. But I mean, you can go there and you can see it like this is the place where he was crucified. And we know that. We know that that's the exact spot. So they go to Golgotha, the place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. He refused it. Why would he refuse that? Well, this is in an attempt to somewhat, this is kind of grace, on behalf of the Romans. This medicinal kind of mixture would slightly numb the horrific pain they're about to endure. Horrific. And the Romans perfected 
the crucifixion, perfected it. There's thoughts there that over the course of hundreds of years, as they put this thing into practice, probably took it from the Assyrians who developed this practice long ago where it w- they wouldn't crucify like nail people to a beam, but they would impale them and see how long they would survive as they're impaled. And they slowly over time perfected this thing. The Romans grabbed hold of that executionary kind of practice and they, they took pride in trying to figure out how can we inflict more pain? Like they would try to outdo each other in inflicting more pain. So they take him there. They're going to they're try to give him this wine mixture with, with myrrh. And I'm going to read to you guys in a second um, some prophecies. But this is a prophecy that actually was talked about hundreds of years before. Even the detail of this, this mixture. But Jesus refuses it. He doesn't want to numb the pain. He's going to take it all. He will take it all. He doesn't want to be numb to any of it. He is paying the price so that you and I would never have to pay this price. He is drinking from this cup so that you and I would never have to drink from this cup of suffering. And he's going to take it all, every last bit of it. He's going to fill it completely for you and for myself. He refused that. It says, then the soldiers nailed him to a cross, to the cross, They divided his clothes and threw dice, right? They cast lots is what your translation may say. That technically, though, they are throwing dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And let me just read to you guys some of these prophecies, because I don't want to get too far into this without missing out on these, because this is, what, this is what's amazing about the Word of God, and it's specifically this story. There are so many prophecies concerning this that Jesus would have no control over, okay? Just so we understand that. There are some, like, I, I got this from, this is Greg Laurie's book, The Biblical Guide to the Passion of the Christ. This is a phenomenal little book, but in here, he lists all these prophecies that were fulfilled within this moment. Let me just read off uh, some of these. That Christ would be scourged and spat upon. That was found in Isaiah chapter 50. And we've, we've already covered that. that. That thing happened. Okay? He wouldn't have control over that. You understand that, right? And when that prophecy was made hundreds of years prior to this story, there's no way that Jesus could have been like, hey, Pilate, can you uh, scourge me, please? Because I'm trying to fulfill these things. Right? He wouldn't do that. He didn't need to. Because the Lord, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, He already knew what was going to happen. Christ's blood money would be used to buy a potter's field. Remember when Judas sold them out and he got that money? Well, they ended up taking that money and buying a potter's field with that money. How could Jesus control that? Christ would be crucified between two thieves. Isaiah 53, 12 talks about that. Christ would be given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, verse 21. Christ would suffer the piercing of his hands and his feet, Psalm 22, 16, and Zechariah 12, 10. Christ's garments would be divided and gambled for, Psalm 22, 18. Read Psalm 22, by the way. It's a tremendous psalm. Christ would be surrounded and ridiculed by his enemies, Psalm 22, 7 through 8. Christ would thirst, Psalm 22, verse 15. I mean, they go on and on, the details. And what I'm trying to communicate to you guys is this how specific the Word of God is. And if anything, as we read through this, this should just 
just infuse within you the confidence that you can trust this Bible. You can trust this book. You can trust in this man who went to the cross and fulfilled all of these prophecies so that you might have a chance, so that you would have new life in him. There's no way around it. You can't make this up. You can't like force these scenarios. You can't manipulate these things. You cannot. This is beyond that. But within this story, these things are happening just like the word said they were going to happen. A quarter or a little bit more of a quarter of the Bible is, is made up of prophecy. And a lot of it's come true, which it should, again, just encourage us. When you open up your word, when you're reading through this thing, you can know this thing is accurate. This thing is true. We can trust in the word of God, which is why we want to preach and teach from the word of God. And that's just what we do here, right? We go verse by verse and all that good stuff. That's just who we are. Why? Because that's what we want. That's what we need. And so we see this stuff. And here, here's this scene where they got him. I mean, they had to lay him down on that crossbeam that, that Simon had to carry with him. And it's there that they're going to position his hands in such a way to where the nails didn't go through his hands. I hope you understand that because there's no way his hands would have been able to support his body physically. They would have ripped right through. Okay, you understand that. But right between the wrist bones here is the perfect spot for a nail that's about eight or nine inches long, a spike to be driven through. Because then it, the weight is, is caught right here on your wrist. And there's also this medium nerve that runs right through your arms. So when you pierce that thing, all you're getting is pulsating shocks through your body. Just fire, pain, nonstop. With every heartbeat, boom, 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 right through these wrists. So they laid him out, pierced his wrists, just like the word said they were going to do. Then they have to hoist him up onto the one that was already set within the ground. So how high up he was and all that, we don't really know. Sometimes they left him at eye level so that anybody walking by could just spit right in their face and mock them, and continue to humiliate them. Was he probably, he was, may have been elevated a little bit more. We don't know. But they're going to get him up there. Sometimes you'll see these uh, depictions of a crucifix with a, a little seat on it, okay? You understand that it's not always on all the crosses, but sometimes they put this little seat there only to prolong the suffering. That's the only reason. It wasn't for their comfort, but it was to prolong the suffering, to see how long they could keep them up there until they die. We don't know if Jesus had one of those. He wasn't going to need it because he was going to die pretty fast. He would give up his spirit really quickly. But they have their arms positioned in such a way, and then it, it opens up your chest, right? So your chest is opened up because the way you die on the cross is through asphyxiation. You suffocate. And then they got to contort his legs in, in such a way to where one foot is on top of the other, because again, it can't go through his foot. It's got to go through right above his, right through his ankle, because it has to support the weight. But again, that nerve runs right there. And so you're getting these, this pulsation that's happening through your body of just fire, fire. It's good for us to know these details. It's good for us to know these details. It's good for us to know what he went through on behalf of us. I know it's not easy. And for me, I, every time I read through this crucifixion story, I always have to battle between getting upset and angry at the ones who did it to my Savior. But then I realize, like, well, it was my sins that put him there. 
It was my sins that put him there. And then I tried to like balance that out with like, but man, look at all that he went through for me. And it's amazing. The pain that he endured. And the world was going to give him all that they had concerning pain and suffering. They were going to give him their best. So they contort the legs in such a way to where your body is, is just on that nail in your ankles. And just, just so you understand, so as they're, they're up there, and the, the goal is that they would, you know, eventually they would end up suffocating. And it would take sometimes days, okay, days, like a few days, even up to like nine days on some records. That's ridiculous. That is crazy. But you have to like push up to take air in because you're slouched over. And then after a while, you can't take any more air in. So in order to get a breath, you have to push up, which means you have to push up on that nail just to take in enough air before the pain is so overwhelming that you slouch back down. That's crucifixion. That's what our Jesus was going through for you and for me. And the whole time he's there, you got soldiers who are mocking him, soldiers who are playing, rolling dice for his garments, which he didn't have much, but they were willing to take, they were willing to roll dice for what he did have. You got passerbyers mocking him as they walk by. They know nothing about Jesus. All they know is like, well, if these guys hate him, then we should hate him. And they do. You have religious leaders who jump in on all the mockery and everything. It's despicable. But what, and we're going to read through some of that, but there's, there's a few things that I do want you to, to kind of grab hold of as we go through this next part. But he's, the New Learning Translation says he, he's crucified in between two revolutionaries, thieves, criminals. My thought, and I, I, this is speculation, so you can take this how you will, but Barabbas was an insurrectionist a revolutionary, if you will. And I would wonder, just thinking, I wonder if these guys were connected to Barabbas. I don't know. Can't say that dogmatically. But I wonder what happened to Barabbas. Again, this is speculatory. So don't, you know, write me or anything like that. I'm just, this is my imagination working where I always think of these characters because I'm fascinated by characters. But I wonder when Barabbas walked off of that stage as a free man, where did he go next? I wonder if he followed at a distance. I wonder if he would have been like, I'm going to see what happens to this guy. We don't know. Can't say anything about it. We'll get to heaven one day. If Barabbas is there, then sweet. He can elaborate on what happened. But I know that these two, these two other criminals that were crucified next to Jesus, kind of the same title was, is, it roughly was given to them that was placed upon Barabbas. So I always just naturally just wonder, well, were they connected? Were they a part of Because he led a rebellion. And it wasn't just him who murdered some guys. It was him and some of his gang, if you will. So I wonder if these two guys were corrected to Barabbas. But again, I don't know. All I know is these two guys are crucified on his right and on his left. And it wasn't that long before, uh, before this story where John, John and James were like, hey, can we have a place at your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus was like, well, I don't think you want that. <laughs> like, I don't, know if you, uh, I don't know if you know what you're asking for. Remember, technically, they got mama to ask, right? Because that's, you know, what good 30-year-old boys do, right? They're like, hey, mom, go talk to Jesus and get us a place of prominence, right? And, but that, it wasn't for them to have. And Jesus did let them know, like, look, you will suffer. You will suffer. But right hand and left hand has already been predetermined, so to speak. 
But here's these criminals. So this is the scene. This is Golgotha. He's on the cross. He's nailed to this thing. There's a criminal on his right. There's a criminal on his left. There's soldiers at his feet. There's religious leaders at his feet. And this is on the highway, so to speak. So anybody going into Jerusalem, they would see them and they would know, don't you dare mess with Rome. Okay? Verse 29, the people passing, passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now. Look at you now. They yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. This is what pastor buyers were saying to Jesus as he is dying on a cross. They're laughing at him. They're laughing at him. You said you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Well, let's see it. He could have said, you will. Oh, you will see it. Give me till Sunday and I'll be back. He could have said that. He would have been right in saying that because they misinterpreted what he had said. He never talked about destroying the temple physically. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. So even in their mockery, they have no clue what they're saying, but they're really just kind of like, you know that you're like, you know, you're going along with him, right? Like you get that in your, even in your mockery that you're testifying of him, kind of, you know that, right? Like, okay, save yourself and come down from the cross. If he had come down from the cross, he could have saved himself but the rest of us would be lost. The rest of us would have been lost. You, you've heard the saying. I know you've heard this. It wasn't nails that kept him on the cross. It was love for you and for me and the world that kept him on the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others. They scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, please note that this is sarcasm, okay, when they're talking about him. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and what? Believe it? You, do you think they actually, if he would have gotten down from the cross, do you think they would have actually believed in him? The correct answer is no. This is all mockery. This is all sarcasm. This is like, Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, we tell you what, Jesus, we know you multiply bread and loaves on a few occasions. We know you've given blind or sight to the blind. We know you've caused the, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the lame to walk. We know you've checked all the messianic boxes, right? And you raised the dude from dead, right? But if you do this one thing, we'll believe in you. It's, yeah, right. Yeah, right. God, show me a sign. You got this. You got this. Get into this. Trust him at his word. These guys are calling for a sign. Jesus even told them, he's like, this generation, you guys want nothing but signs. Not that you would believe in them or anything, but they're like, come down from the cross, then we'll believe him. It says, even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed them. They're dying men on the right and on the left, and they're mocking Jesus as well. They jump in on it. And then the craziness begins to happen. Verse 33, it says, At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Complete darkness.
We're so glad that you joined us for a look at the Gospel of Mark here on Bread for the Broken. Pastor James will continue to take you verse by verse through this New Testament book about Jesus. There's so much to learn. We pray that you've heard something today that's drawn you deeper into your relationship with the Lord. Do you have questions about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus? Well, we would love to hear from you and talk more. So go to breadforthebroken.com and click on contact to leave a message for us. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Or if you're in the Galveston area, we would love to get to know you in person too. Join us on Sundays or Thursdays as we study God's Word together at Calvary Galveston. You'll find service times, more information, and directions at our website. Once again, that's breadforthebroken.com. We're so grateful for our listening audience. And if this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you consider teaming up with us in a financial way? A lot is done to get these teachings out on the radio. And we're so grateful for those who feel led by God to contribute in that way. Simply go to the About tab on our website and you'll find the Donate link. We'd also like to ask you to be praying for us and for your fellow listeners. We can all use God's guidance and continued grace as we navigate this world with Him. Thanks for praying. If you missed any part of today's teaching, you can also find it on our website, breadforthebroken.com. Thanks again for tuning in today to Bread for the Broken.